Welcome to Zoinks, the podcast that explores creepy mysteries, spooky encounters, and all things strange and unusual. In 1890, inventor Louis Le Prince boarded a train and was never seen again. What happened to the father of film? Of all the early photographic technologies, perhaps the most well-known is the daguerreotype, a method where a silver-coated copper sheet is applied to a mirrored surface and treated to make it light-sensitive. By exposing this plate to focus light, an image would be created. It wasn't perfect. It was a reflective image that could appear positive or negative depending on how it was held. The technology would be replaced by more advanced technologies but it remains to this day one of the most famous early forays into capturing light on the page, so to speak. The technology is named after Louis Daguerre, its creator, and perhaps this is why Daguerre is remembered so well. But in reality, the creation of photography wasn't a clear, linear narrative, but a scattered collection of independent discoveries and creations. One such early pioneer was Nisiphore Niepce, who created a rudimentary process called heliography and used it between 1826 and 1827 to create a view from the window at Lagrasse, the earliest known photograph. This early work inspired Daguerre when he was put in touch with Niepce and the two began to correspond. Daguerre had already developed an interest in the idea of photography after experimenting with camera obscura, a phenomenon where a dark room contains a small hole in the wall which acts like a lens projecting an image of the outside world onto the wall of the room. Daguerre saw the potential to turn this into a permanent photographic process, but Niepsu was hesitant to discuss his methods, and the two eventually began to discuss their work through a secret code. The two would eventually work together in an official capacity, having drawn up a contract. When Niepsu died in 1833, the rights to his work were inherited by his son, Isidore, who was not himself interested in the creations, but saw their potential and was happy to draw up a new agreement with Daguerre. Part of this new contract was an agreement that any new technologies Daguerre developed would bear solely his name, and it's perhaps this moment in time that sealed Daguerre's place in history, while Niepce's would be lost to time for all but the most ardent of photography historians. Daguerre made great progress as he continued his work alone, revisiting the silver halide methods that Niepce had previously abandoned and developing the daguerreotype process, allowing a sharp, clear image to be exposed in a matter of minutes rather than hours. One notable product of Daguerre's experiments is a view from the Boulevard de Temple, a daguerreotype photograph of a busy street in Paris. As a result of the slow exposure time of the daguerreotype, the busy street appears abandoned, as though Paris has been rendered a ghost town. In the bottom left corner, though, there are two clear figures, a shoeshiner and his customer. As the only two people stood in the same spot long enough to be captured in the image, these two strangers, completely unknown to them, 
became the first humans to be photographed. To me, this is the first turning point in the history of image capture. We have multiple surviving photographs that predate this image, but to see old photographs of buildings is cold and impersonal. To be able to lay eyes on the two men in the middle of a conversation in 1838 is immediately captivating. Who were they? Where did they live? Where were they going? What was on their minds at the precise moment this photo was taken? It's spectral, and it's moving. A window that allows a connection across time, across location, across generations, across centuries. That's the power of photography, and it was there, in Paris, leaning out of his window, that Louis Daguerre first unleashed the industry's potential. Although the secrecy with which they conducted their experiments shows that Daguerre and Niepce were both leaps and bounds ahead of their time, and were the only men who could see the potential this budding technology possessed. Or were they? Daguerre's technology was announced to the world on January 7th, 1839, and the news quickly spread around the globe, triggering a wave of claims that others had already invented similar technologies. In Brazil, Hercules Florence had already begun working on similar technology in 1932. In France, Hippolyte Bayard invented a different process for creating photographic prints and claimed to have completed this before Daguerre. In Britain, William Fox Talbot created his own photographic process, which printed the image on a negative, allowing endless copies of the image to be reproduced, a method that remains the basis for photography to this very day. Also in Britain, John Herschel had been experimenting with photography since at least the 1810s, and he used his knowledge to improve on Daguerre's process. Yet, despite these numerous contributions, many of which seem to have sprung up independently of one another, it's Daguerre's name that lives on, while the others remain less known, a perfect example of the importance of first-mover advantage. Although, as a side note, John Herschel was the man who named the seven moons of Saturn and the four moons of Uranus, a planet which his own father discovered and which catapulted the family to fame. So, perhaps Herschel didn't suffer too much from coming second in the history books on this one. Daguerre would go on to produce many portrait photographs with his daguerreotype process, including one subject named Louis-Aimé Augustin Le Prince, a son of Daguerre's friend. Le Prince would go on to spend much time at Daguerre's studio, as Daguerre became somewhat of a mentor to him, providing him with lessons in photography and chemistry. Le Prince would go on to study painting in Paris and chemistry in Germany. Armed with the technical know-how of a chemistry degree, the first-hand knowledge of his time with the father of photography, and the artistic appreciation of capturing life in paint, Louis Le Prince had everything he would need to change the world forever. But instead, he would find himself reliving the very situation Daguerre himself had been caught in almost 50 years prior. At the invitation of his friend John Whitley, Le Prince moved to Leeds in the north of England in 1866, where, three years later, he would marry John's sister, Elizabeth Whitley. Elizabeth also had a background in painting and was a talented artist, and together the two created the Leeds Technical School of Art. In 1881, the family moved to the United States, where Le Prince became the manager for a small group of artists which produced large panoramic paintings of historical scenes for exhibition in large cities across the country. It was around this time that Le Prince began his experiments in pushing the medium of photography even further by attempting to create the first moving image. Le Prince patented his first attempt, a large device capable of capturing a 16-frame moving image. 
The invention was more of a hack than a new creation, though, as it used 16 separate lenses to take 16 individual photographs. While this trick feels uncannily familiar in a time when we walk around with three or more lenses stuck to our phones, it simply wasn't a suitable way to shoot motion. Le Prince hadn't figured out a way to project or display his images, but if he had, the quality of his films would have been negatively affected by the shifting perspective caused by his 16 individual lenses. The problem can be seen in the final product, as Le Prince's early attempt, Man Walking Around a Corner, survives to this day. It isn't generally regarded as the first film, but a collection of 16 rapid photographs. We can, however, piece them together to see how they would look in motion. The final product is less than a second long, and the buildings in the shot seem to warp backwards and forwards as a result of the variable viewpoints. But the clip does indeed give a clear moving image of a man walking around a corner in 1887. It might not be the first film by modern standards, but it's the first of what today we might call a GIF. Le Prince continued his work, and after returning to Leeds in 1887, he succeeded in developing a single lens motion camera. On October 14th, 1888, Le Prince used his invention to record a film of less than two seconds. The Roundhay Garden scene was shot at the home of Le Prince's in-laws, Sarah and Joseph Whitley, and features the pair, as well as family friend Annie Hartley, and Le Prince's son, Adolphe. According to Adolphe, the film was shot at 12 frames per second, for a total runtime of a little over a minute and a half for the film's 20 frames. Analysis of the film, however, suggests a frame rate of 7 frames per second, which would bring the film to almost 3 seconds long. The clip features its stars walking casually around the garden, and through modern eyes, it's hardly impressive. But this was the first time that movement had been clearly captured in any medium, the first time any human being had been recorded in motion. When you cast your mind back to the context of the time, a time when the invention of the photograph remained a living memory, it's easy to see what Le Prince himself must have seen. The momentous nature of his invention, a turning point in technology, and something that he had to pursue at all costs. In September 1890, Le Prince was due to travel to the United States, reportedly to showcase his work publicly. The family travelled ahead of him, and Le Prince opted first to visit his brother Albert in Dijon. On September 16th, Le Prince was due to board a train back to Paris, where he was due to meet friends. When the train arrived, however, Le Prince was not on board. Unbeknownst to his friends, Le Prince had missed his train. Instead, he boarded the next one, which would arrive in Paris slightly later, around 11pm. And so, at Dijon station, Albert Le Prince said farewell to his brother, as he boarded the train that would carry him to the capital. It would be the last time Albert saw his brother. It was the last time anybody would. Given Le Prince's long journey, with multiple stops, and given the slow methods of communication available at the time, it would be weeks before the family realised that something was wrong, by which point no trace of Le Prince, or any of his luggage, would be found. Discussion about Le Prince's disappearance usually boils down to four core theories, all of which, sadly, assume that his story ended in death. The first places responsibility for his death on his brother, Albert. The pair's mother had died in 1887, leaving behind an inheritance, 
and according to this theory, Le Prince was still owed a substantial sum from this, a sum which Albert never intended to provide. In one sense, this theory works. After all, Albert was the last person to see Le Prince alive, and if we look at this theory from the point of view of Occam's razor, that the solution which requires the least assumptions is the most likely, this theory does look good. After all, if we assume that Albert lied about seeing Le Prince off at the station, then his disappearance is wholly explained, in that he didn't disappear at all, but disappeared in Dijon by Albert's hand. However, this leaves the circumstances of his death wide open. Anything could have happened, in any place, at almost any time, and there's no evidence to point to any of it. Additionally, there is no clear motive. While there may very well have been disputes over the inheritance, Albert was said to be doing very well financially, and not in the kind of perilous financial position that might drive someone to murder. There are also surviving letters between the pair that remain with the family, and due to the closeness and friendliness of these letters, surviving members of the Le Prince family have argued against this theory. The second theory is that Le Prince disembarked the train either in Paris or at an earlier stop, and took his own life. Again, though, this theory relies on the fact that it's technically possible, while having no actual evidence to suggest that it may have happened. Le Prince had no reported history of mental health problems, and was said to have had a very happy, loving life. His career was going well, and he was about to unveil the invention that might put his name in the history books forever. A piece of evidence that is sometimes used to back up this theory is a photograph discovered in the archives of the Paris police in 2003, which shows the body of a drowned man pulled from the Seine in 1890, and which was said to bear a striking resemblance to Le Prince. The resemblance is just that, though. A resemblance. There was no confirmed ID of the body, and the death certificate recorded the John Doe's height as being substantially shorter than Le Prince's notable six-foot-four frame. With this theory, it's also worth considering the patent law that Le Prince, having previously patented his 16-lens camera, would be familiar with. Due to Le Prince's disappearance, his family were not able to gain control of his patents until seven years had elapsed. With multiple people seeking to create motion pictures, Simultaneously, Le Prince's first mover advantage was what put him ahead of the competition. Unable to use his patent for the better part of a decade, the family were robbed of the ability to take advantage of this. Would Le Prince, who would have likely known of this outcome, have taken his own life in such a way? A different method, or even a note explaining his actions, may have led to his death being confirmed much earlier, freeing up the patent for the family's use and ensuring their financial prosperity and historical significance. From everything we know of Le Prince, it seems reasonable to assume that this is the outcome he would want. Someone in the mental state to end their own life, of course, is not always in the best frame of mind to be thinking through things like this. But it is nonetheless a good reason to be skeptical of this particular theory. The third theory suggests that Le Prince, having successfully arrived in Paris, was the victim of a random robbery which ended in murder. If he did make it to Paris, Le Prince would have arrived around 11pm, and there were warnings at the time from police that thieves were taking advantage of lone travellers. While there is, once again, no evidence to point specifically to this theory, it's worth remembering that a random robbery would leave little evidence, 
especially in 1890, before the ability to test for DNA or fingerprints. On the other hand, though, you might expect a robbery to leave one key piece of evidence behind. The body. In order for this theory to be plausible, it would require that after murdering Le Prince, the thieves disposed of his body, likely in the Seine. Is this likely? How many thieves would it take? How far might they have been from the river? Given the almost impossible task of finding the culprit of such a crime, it seems to me that random attackers would merely have killed Le Prince, taking his belongings and leaving behind an identifiable body. Why waste time trying to dispose of him when you're not likely to be caught anyway? Our fourth and final theory is perhaps the biggest and most widely known, as well as being the favoured theory of Le Prince's wife, Lizzie. Thomas Edison is remembered as a prolific inventor, but in reality, many of his creations were collaborations or work for hire. One such invention was the kinetograph, a motion picture camera patented by Edison and developed by his employee, William Kennedy Dixon. The device used the same method of rolling film previously patented by Le Prince to capture a sequence of movements on celluloid film. These could then be played back on another Edison device, the kinetoscope. Edison had labelled film projection as a financially unviable direction for the technology, and the kinetoscope was his vision for how people would interact with the new phenomenon of moving pictures. The device consists of one large box which sits on the floor and comes up to about the middle of a torso. Inside of this box was a reel of film, which was stored not in a roll, but in one long continuous strip that looped back and forth from the top to the bottom of the machine. A small light at the top of the device would shine through the film and out of a peephole on the top through which the viewer could look. When the film was wound through the machine, it would create the illusion of movement. In basic function, this is really no different to how a film projector works, only in this case limited to one single viewer, a bit like a very large steampunk version of a VR headset. The prototype was fully developed in 1891, three years after Le Prince shot his first film. By 1892, the device had been perfected. In 1893, it would premiere to the world at the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences, and in 1894, a kinetoscope parlour would open in New York City, a building dedicated to displaying motion pictures and essentially the precursor to the modern-day movie theatre. In 1894, Dixon would team up with Herman Kassler to invent and patent a similar device called the Mutoscope, which used the same basic function as the kinetoscope, but in a much smaller, much cheaper form factor. This led to a lawsuit in 1898, as Edison claimed that the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company was infringing on his kinetoscope patent. One witness called in to testify in this lawsuit was Adolphe Le Prince, who used the opportunity to bring the attention to his father's work that he thought it deserved and Adolphe threw his energy into proving that his father was the original inventor of the motion picture. While the Roundhay Garden scene was clear proof that Le Prince had successfully created a motion picture camera, there were doubts about the date of the film's creation. Adolphe, however, was able to produce his grandmother's death certificate. As Sarah Whitley had died just 10 days after appearing in the clip, this was proof that Le Prince had been able to create a moving image no later than October of 1888. One key problem for Adolphe and the family was the American patent that Le Prince had been granted for his 16 lens camera. 
initially referring to a camera with one or more lenses, the patent would have covered both of Le Prince's inventions. The US Patent Office, however, took issue with this wording. As they had previously issued a patent for a single-lens camera, they requested that Le Prince remove the phrase, one or more. Le Prince had argued with the patent office over this for two years, repeatedly amending the application. The previous application that the patent office had approved was for a single-lens camera, but it had been for a still camera, a distinct device from the kind which Le Prince was attempting to protect. Adolphe would fight for his father's reputation to the very end, but ultimately, the court ruled in favour of Edison, not only deciding that the mutoscope infringed on his patent, but essentially declaring Edison to be the inventor of the motion picture. This would not be the end of the debate, though, as a series of legal battles over this issue would continue for years, albeit without the involvement of the Le Prince family. But how does this figure into the disappearance of Le Prince? Work had begun on the development of the kinetograph in 1889, a year before Le Prince vanished, and according to this theory, Edison was aware of Le Prince and his groundbreaking work. Knowing that Le Prince was due to arrive in the States and publicly unveil his invention, and knowing that his own motion picture camera was months, if not years, away from completion, this theory states that Edison hired someone to have Le Prince killed, causing his name and his invention to fade from memory, and ensuring that Edison's would forever be associated with the invention of film. Again, though, there is no evidence to back up this theory. Lizzie Le Prince, however, would remain convinced that Edison had had some involvement in her husband's death. She would only double down on this belief in 1901, three years after Edison's lawsuit, when Adolphe would be found dead in the woods, killed by a gunshot wound, and with a rifle by his side. The death was assumed to be due to a hunting accident, but Lizzie was convinced that once again, she had lost a family member at the hands of Thomas Edison. All of these theories are possible, but all of them have several flaws, most notably the lack of evidence to point to any particular direction. And with little progress on the case after more than 130 years, it's unlikely that we'll ever learn the final resting place of Louis Le Prince, or exactly what happened to the father of film in his final moments. But before we move on, let's exercise our brains and go over the theories again with a logical eye. If we want to narrow the mystery down, the first question we would want to answer is whether Albert's testimony is reliable. If we could say that Albert was lying about seeing Le Prince on the platform of Dijon Station, then we could reliably put him front and centre as the prime suspect. If a man vanishes, and the last known sighting of him is a lie, it's almost certain that the man telling that lie was involved, or at least that he knows more than he's letting on. But if we were to say that Albert was telling the truth, what does that tell us about Le Prince's final movements? Well, given that Le Prince's luggage was also missing, it seemed likely that Le Prince disembarked the train of his own free will. There were no reports of any kind of scuffle on board, and so we can assume that the crime happened after Le Prince exited the train. And, unless we believe an opportunistic thief grabbed hold of the unattended luggage, it seems reasonable to say that Le Prince took his belongings with him when he left the train. Where did he get off? This we can't say. He may have made it to Paris, 
or he may have gotten off at an earlier stop. With no witnesses and no passenger records, it's impossible to say which. But no matter where he was, in this scenario, Le Prince has exited the train, with no trouble and with his luggage in hand. Let's play out what might have happened next. In our first scenario, a hired goon of Thomas Edison's has been made aware that Le Prince is due to travel from Paris to New York and waits in Paris, ready to strike. Did he know Le Prince's travel itinerary? Did he know when he was expected? Or was he forced to stake out the train station for days, hoping to catch a glimpse of the man and identify him by sight alone? If he knew which train Le Prince was due on, what did he do when Le Prince didn't arrive, due to his missing the train? Did he wait for the next one, in the hope that Le Prince would be on it? This is a lot of questions that need to be answered in this scenario for it to make sense. In our second scenario, though, Le Prince has left the train station and heads for the Seine, intending to end his own life. If he took his luggage with him, where did it end up? Did he choose to take it to the riverbed with him? Did he leave it behind for someone to find? While a lot more plausible than the assassination, there are still a few questions unanswered here. In our third and final scenario, Le Prince leaves the train station and is preyed upon by opportunistic thieves who murder him and take his luggage. In this theory, the only real question we have to answer is where the crime happened and where, how, and why the body was disposed of. Given that these questions are smaller and more specific than our previous theories, there's simply less wiggle room for the imagination in this scenario, and personally, I think that's a compelling reason to think that the robbery is the most likely solution to the mystery of the disappearance of Louis Le Prince. This is also the theory favoured by one of Le Prince's surviving grandchildren, Laurie Snyder, who believes her grandfather's death was a simple, tragic case of wrong time, wrong place. But what do you think? And now, let's take a look into the world of weird science. Weird science. In 1833, a cholera epidemic led to a sudden increase in burials in Guanajuato, Mexico, which led to severe overcrowding of the city's cemeteries. Starting in the 1870s, the local government enacted a new law which required relatives of the deceased to pay a continuing tax in order to hold on to their loved one's burial plot. For many, the tax was too high, and the result was that the bodies of their lost relatives were exhumed in order to free up space. But what makes this story so notable is the condition of the bodies when they were unearthed. To everyone's surprise, the bodies were surprisingly well-preserved. Not just preserved, but mummified. That word might make you think of places like ancient Egypt, and the comparison between these two is quite interesting. After all, the mummification process in Egypt was incredibly complicated. It involved removing all internal organs but the heart, and destroying the brain with a long rod, which would allow the liquefied organ to drain through the nose, before drying the body out, wrapping it in several layers of bandages, and sealing it with a resin to keep moist air out. The entire mummification process in ancient Egypt took around 40 days. And yet, here in Guanajuato, we find remarkably well-mummified cadavers, 
which became this way completely unintentionally. How? Well, the process is thought to be caused by a mix of conditions particular to this area, including the high altitude of around 6,000 feet above sea level, low humidity weather, and a unique soil composition. Whatever the reason, the remarkably well-preserved corpses are an interesting thing to observe, and as more and more bodies were exhumed from the cemeteries where their families defaulted on payments, word grew and grew about the fascinating and macabre curiosity. Eventually, even tourists would visit the site to see them, causing the caretakers of the facility to begin charging a small fee. The attraction's popularity would continue to grow, until eventually the local government decided to formally turn the site into a museum. Now, it's known as the Museum of the Mummies of Guanajuato, and sits on top of the site where the mummies were first discovered. I was in Guanajuato over this past summer, and of course I could not resist the opportunity to see the mummies for myself. The sight of them is, frankly, quite horrifying. The drying of their bodies has caused them to shift into strange, distorted positions, often looking as though they're writhing in pain. And their faces, too, are dried out and stretched into uncomfortable screams. It's hard not to imagine that these people are somehow aware of their own demise, that they're crying out to us from the beyond, that their faces are forever frozen in the horrifying realisation of death. In actuality, of course, it's just an illusion, caused by the mummification. Most of these people will have been laid to rest in a peaceful position, with relaxed faces of a person asleep. Many of them may have died peacefully and without pain. There are some mummies, though, whose stories are a little different. The museum is home to Ignacia Aguila, a woman with a condition that caused her heart rate to slow down so drastically that she could be mistaken for dead. And unfortunately, that is exactly what happened, as Ignacia was buried in a hurry during the outbreak, only to be found in a different position when her body was exhumed. She had apparently turned over in her coffin and bitten into her arm. Blood was even said to have been found in her mouth, proving that she was alive when the burial took place. How true this story is, I can't say. When I first heard it, I was skeptical. When I saw her body for myself, I have to admit she is certainly in a strange position, one of worry. Her arms curled up almost like a baby, her hands pressed together as if in prayer. But then, so many of these people are frozen in positions that imply meanings that simply aren't there. They're just a result of the mummification process changing their body. What I did notice, however, as I looked at Ignacia's body, were the fingers. Not only were her hands clasped together, but her fingers were interlocked, a position that can only have been intentional. The museum is also home to the smallest mummy in the world, the body of an unborn child whose mother died in pregnancy. The two now sit beside one another in the museum. I think the mummy that stuck with me the most was the body of a man who had died of a stab wound. His now empty abdomen is draped in the shirt he died in, a large hole visible, surrounded by a long dried stain of red. Whereas many of the mummies felt abstract, seeing clearly how this man died allows you to immediately imagine the final moments of his life, and I feel it makes it easier to feel a connection. A sad one, rooted in a terrible moment, the worst, 
moment he'd had. But a connection, nonetheless. It also struck me that this man had been laid to rest in the clothes that he died in. Why did this happen? Who buried him? Did he not have anyone in his life who would change his clothes for him before he was laid to rest? How strange it is that a strange quirk of the environment has allowed us to peek into these people's pasts in such an intimate way. It's time now to explore today's spooky encounter. So let's discuss the unusual case of Emily Sergey. The word doppelganger has come to have many uses over the years. In modern usage, it's typically used as a neutral term for someone who holds a strong resemblance to another person. It's also been used when talking about the idea of an evil twin. But historically, doppelganger referred to a very strange and very particular paranormal phenomenon in which a person encountered a ghostly double of themselves. This was often considered to be a harbinger of misfortune, with many believing that a run-in with one's doppelganger signified an approaching demise. One such encounter is found in the story of Emily Sarget, who seemed not only to meet her doppelganger, but to be chronically haunted by it. In 1845, 32-year-old Emily was hired as a teacher at Pensionat von Neuwelke, a boarding school in present-day Latvia. Although Emily had been teaching for 16 years now, the school would be her 19th workplace. By all accounts, Emily was a hard worker and a wonderful teacher. It seemed a mystery why she had struggled to hold down a job and why she had moved around so often. But quickly, the problem became clear. Emily was teaching a class of 17 girls when her spectral double first appeared. Standing beside her as she wrote on the chalkboard, her back turned to her students. The double seemed to mimic Emily's movements and appeared to be visible only to the students, not to Emily herself. On another occasion, Emily had been outside, tending to the gardens while the class inside was learning to sew. When the teacher excused herself for a moment, Emily entered the classroom and took the teacher's place. Nothing seemed to be wrong with this picture until one of the students pointed out that Emily was, in fact, still in the garden. The students could see her plainly through the windows, tending to the plants, while a second Emily sat with them in the classroom. Many such sightings followed. People would see a double of Emily sitting beside her, seeming to imitate her as it mimicked her movements. In one notable sighting, Emily helped a student alter her dress, and when the student looked down, she was shocked to see two Emilies working on her gown. She immediately fainted on the spot. The more sightings happened, the more word got around, and the bigger the problem became. Soon, staff were worried that parents were complaining. Emily herself was unable to provide any explanation. Not only did she not have any idea what was causing her situation, she wasn't even aware when it was happening, as she never laid eyes on the double herself. Ultimately, and despite Emily's clear talent as a teacher, the school had no choice but to let her go, marking her 19th termination. But what caused Emily's identical apparition? In many of the sightings, the double simply appeared beside Emily and copied her movements, as if she was simply projecting a second version of herself. Other times, though, the double appeared to move independently, even appearing in different locations. 
Speaking out about the garden incident, when the double had appeared before the class while Emily tended to the gardens, Emily said that she had considered returning to the classroom that day, but chose instead to remain in the garden, which had been interpreted as evidence that Emily's double was somehow acting out her thoughts, or somehow reflecting an alternate universe where she'd made different choices. Notably, it was said that when Emily's double would appear, the real Emily would become tired and lethargic, only to spring back to her usual energetic self when the double disappeared, implying that the double was indeed part of her, rather than just an image. Emily's story is an outlier because of its chronic nature. Other stories of ghostly doppelgangers tend to be single encounters, whereas Emily's double seemed to haunt her constantly for more than a decade. Perhaps this comes down to the fact that Emily managed to never lay eyes on her doppelganger. Indeed, this fact may have saved her life, given the legend that encountering one's double is a sign of impending doom. The original source for the story of Emily Sarget is an 1860 book, Footfalls on the Boundary of Another World, by Robert Dale Owen, in which the story is told secondhand through a student who claimed to have known Emily during her time at Pensionat von Neuwelke, so the story is almost impossible to verify as anything more than hearsay. The story, however, is certainly creepy, and almost 200 years later, it's certainly got staying power, as we're still pondering the mystery of Emily Saget and her ghostly doppelganger. That's everything we've got for you today but we'll have another mystery for you in the next episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we have a whole website where we publish articles about all things spooky, from the supernatural to the unexpected. You can find that at daffodillies.co.uk slash zoinks. That's D-A-F-F-A-D-I-L-L-I-E-S dot co dot uk slash zoinks. Head over there now, dive in, and creep yourself out. And be sure to join us in the comments to share your thoughts and theories. We've also started producing bonus episodes where we discuss now-solved mysteries in depth. Those are available exclusively to our subscribers on our Apple Podcast channel. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, you'll find the name of the channel, Daffodilies Originals, right there on our show page. Click through to that and you'll find where you can subscribe. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is fearbyzoinks, and you can email us at zoinks at daffodillies.co.uk. Finally... If you have a moment, we'd love a rating and review on whichever app you're using to get your podcasts. It would really help us out and help other people find us. Until next time, stay spooky. Zoinks is a Daffodilies production.